Our second reading this morning is from Romans chapter 1. I will read verses 18 through 32. Hear the word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would speak to us this day. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what it is that you have in mind for us. Amen. So two weeks ago, we read that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That was Romans 1.16, and that's good news. And last week, we heard that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That's Romans 1.17, and that's great news. But this week, we, we read... Romans 1.18, which announces that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women. And that's bad news. It's a dose of 
double, it's a double dose of bad news. Bad news about the pervasiveness of human sin and bad news about God's wrath against sinfulness. Now maybe you're thinking we should have quit while we were ahead. Maybe we should have been satisfied with sermons of the last two Sundays about God's salvation and about God's righteousness freely given, all good news, and skipped coming to church today. I mean, who wants to hear about human sin and God's wrath? And is there really any worse news than that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women? Now, just to warn you, it will be sin and wrath for a number of weeks in this sermon series through the book of Romans. It's not until Romans 3.21 that Paul turns a corner in his argument and begins to talk about God's gospel solution to pervasive human sin and to God's righteous wrath. That's about nine weeks of wrath, so hold on to your hats. Now, as we work our way through this wrath section, it is important that we not lose sight of Paul's larger plan in this letter to the Romans. Because the letter as a whole is not about sin and wrath. It's about salvation and glory. Even though sin and wrath are an unavoidable component of that larger story. The first 17 verses of Romans are a kind of introductory overview. Paul greets the Romans. He tells them how much he loves them, how much he wants to see them. And then he very succinctly announces the theme of the entire letter. The good news of the righteousness of God, which is the power of God for our salvation through faith. We see that in verses 16 and 17, a kind of thumbnail sketch of the gospel. But now, beginning in verse 18, where we find ourselves today, Paul gets down to the sticky business of unpacking those two verses. Paul gets down to the business of fully explaining the gospel and what it means and how it works and how we lay hold of this good news. And, as it turns out, the good news begins with a double dose of bad news. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. If it seems strange to you that good news starts with bad news, if it seems strange that the gospel begins with a pronouncement about pervasive human sinfulness and the wrath of God, then think about it this way. The gospel is God's diagnosis of a deadly pre-existing condition, pervasive human sin. The gospel is God's prognosis of that condition. If left untreated, wrath from heaven will destroy us. And then the gospel is God's healing prescription of an otherwise incurable disease. Three parts to the gospel. Diagnosis, prognosis, and prescription. Every once in a while you'll hear stories about someone who's been remarkably cured of cancer. 
And you celebrate with them in the good news because this threat of death has been lifted from them. But that good news that the cancer has been cured always comes after the bad news. The diagnosis that a cancer has been detected in the body. The prognosis that if it's left untreated, the cancer will be terminal. Now some people are so afraid of a bad diagnosis. Some people are so afraid of what the doctor might tell them about their health that they avoid going to a doctor at all. They're so afraid of the possibility of bad news that they have one disease or another that they preclude the possibility of any good news, that there's a cure for their disease, that they can live a long and healthy life. I'm sure you understand the analogy that I'm drawing with our spiritual health. Some people are so afraid of the bad news, the diagnosis, that all human hearts are filled with ungodliness and the prognosis That if left untended, those darkened hearts will one day face the inexorable wrath of Almighty God. Some people are so afraid of the bad news that they preclude the possibility of good news. That by faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. That by faith in Jesus Christ, we have fellowship with God. That by faith in Jesus Christ, we are adopted eternally as sons and daughters of God. That by faith in Jesus Christ, God's wrath against our sin is turned aside. And it's satisfied at the cross. The gospel is good news. News that our pre-existing condition is cured and that we can live forever, but we can only receive that good news if we're willing first to hear the sobering bad news. That none are righteous, no, not one. And that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. The good news begins with a double dose of bad news. Starting at Romans 1.18, Paul gives his diagnosis of the human condition and he begins with the Gentiles first and then later in in the book he's going to turn to the Jews. Paul splits his diagnosis in this way because the Roman church was a split church. It was made up of both Jews and Gentiles and the experience of these two groups was very different and it seems That the pattern of sin in these two groups was also very different. I guess you might call the Jews the traditionalists in the Roman church. They did things the way that they had always been done. There was circumcision, of course, just as their fathers and grandfathers had been circumcised before them. And then there were all of the Jewish holidays, Passover and Yom Kippur, yada, yada, holidays kept generation after generation. And then there were the dietary laws. Jewish Christians continued to keep kosher. They continued to cook the way their grandmothers and great-grandmothers had cooked. And so Jewish Christians in Rome had lots and lots of tradition surrounding their faith in God. But God still has a beef with them. We'll come to that a little bit later. The Gentile Christians, on the other hand, were not traditional at all. Before they became followers of Jesus, they were worshiping weird gods like Poseidon and Athena and Zeus and Apollo. And so when they became Christians, they left all of that weirdness behind. And they came to church without any tradition. 
And it was over matters of tradition that the Roman church was fighting at this time. Jewish Christians against Gentile Christians. Paul talks about this conflict in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. We'll get there eventually. But here in chapters 1 and 2, Paul begins to talk about the sins of the Gentile people, sins of the surrounding pagan culture, and the sins that the Gentile converts were likely to have engaged in before they became followers of Jesus. Paul gives his diagnosis of the sin sickness of the Gentiles, and it's a really long list of ailments. The list shows up in verses 29 and 30. I'll read them for you. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. It's quite a list. Do you think Paul left anything out? Probably. There are several places in Scripture where Paul offers lists of vices and lists of virtues, lists of the fruits of the flesh and lists of fruits of the Spirit. And those lists are best understood as representative rather than exhaustive. Paul doesn't list every sin. But he does give a representative sample of Gentile sins. By the way, did you spot any of your favorite sins in that list? Any ones you want to mention this morning? Paul's point with this list is that sin is thoroughgoing and destructive. Jesus said that the whole of God's law, the whole of the law of Moses, is summed up in just two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. And in Paul's list of sins, you see there's no love of God, there's hatred instead. And every sin, beginning with gossip and ending up with murder, serves to destroy people, destroy relationships, destroy families, destroy marriages, and destroy communities. But... As important as this list of sins is, and you could do a whole sermon series, you know, on this list of sins, I'm not going to, there are actually two other larger features in Paul's argument this morning that I want you to notice. Paul draws special attention to two larger features using a carefully constructed or carefully written parallel construction. The first one shows up in verse 23 where Paul points out that the Gentiles, quote, exchanged the truth of about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And the second one shows up in verse 26 where Paul tells us that the Gentiles, quote, exchanged natural sexual relations with those that are contrary to nature. It's interesting that Paul doesn't place idolatry or unnatural sex on his list of representative sins. He could have, and he does in other places, but here in Romans, Paul highlights 
these two kinds of deviations from God's will as forms of exchange. As two examples of trading the better thing which God offers for the worst thing which we make up ourselves. And if we think about it for a minute, though idolatry and unnatural sex don't show up on Paul's list of sins in this particular place, they are representative of what happens in every kind of sin. We exchange the glory of an immortal, unchanging God for the transient, perishable images and human creations. That's what we do every time we sin. Whether our sin is gossip or our sin is murder, we trade the opportunity to participate in the unchanging glory of God for the chance to muck around in a pile of trash that's already on the trash truck on its way to the dump. So first, let's talk about the first exchange. Exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul doesn't actually use the word idolatry here in this passage, but he describes it. And he describes it in terms of abandoning natural reason. Natural reason, unaided, normal human reason, tells us certain things about God. Paul writes, quote, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things, uh, they, uh, in the things they have made. So they are without excuse. The technical theological term for what Paul is talking about here is general revelation or natural theology. There are certain things that we can know about God just by using normal human reason, just by looking around us. We can't know everything about God that way, but we can know some things. And Paul says that the Gentiles saw and knew those things about God, and yet... As he says in verse 18, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Why do we suppress the truth that we actually know in our hearts? I don't know. Why would we exchange the glory of an immortal God for a self-made image of creeping things? It's very mysterious. But that's precisely what we do. It's a kind of perversity that eludes rational explanation. Think about the Greeks, for example. Think about the great philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. These were very smart and thoughtful, worldly people. But when they looked around them at the universe, rather than honoring one God and creator and giving thanks to him for his goodness and the creation, instead they invented all kinds of twisted, complicated mythologies driven by base human motivations, and they bowed down before countless idols made in the image of people and animals. What were they thinking? Now, I'm not talking about the uneducated people the people who simply did whatever custom told them. I'm talking about the educated people, the sophisticated people who should have known better. What were they thinking? Paul says that they were suppressing the truth. Paul says that they knew the truth, but they exchanged it for a lie. And so, claiming to be wise, they became foolish. 
Sometimes people will say to me, Pastor Dan, now what about all those poor people who've never had the opportunity to read the Bible or to learn about Jesus? Why can't they be saved? How can it be fair to punish people who just don't know any better? Now Jesus, of course is a matter of special revelation, not general revelation. We can't just look at the universe and know that there would be a Christ. Someone has to tell us. Someone has to report the historical facts. But Paul's point with the Gentiles is that they are without excuse because they don't even do what they should have done given the knowledge that they had. General revelation and natural theology tells any sane person that there is one God and that He is the creator of the universe and that He is good and worthy of our worship and our thanks. But the Gentiles suppressed this truth, this truth of general revelation, and they refused to respond appropriately. Paul writes, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Or give him thanks. In other words, they exchanged the truth for a lie. Now let's talk about the second exchange. The exchange of natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the section of Romans that we read through today, Paul is specifically uh, writing to the Gentile Christians. And that's because the sexual practices in the Gentile world were very different from the sexual practices in the Jewish world. Paul will have other things to say to the Jews about sex a little bit later on. The Jewish scriptures, the Torah, places very specific boundaries around sex. In Mark chapter 10, we get to overhear a conversation that Jesus has with some of the teachers of the law about marriage and divorce. And, and Jesus says this. He says, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So what we see in that little conversation that we get to overhear, Jesus grounds human sexuality in marriage, and then he grounds marriage in God's design of the creation. In other words, holy sex, H-O-L-Y sex, holy sex will be natural sex. Sex according to the way that God designed the creation from the beginning. At Mount Sinai, when God gives the law to Moses, God makes this general principle more explicit. And in the law of Moses, sex is encouraged inside of marriage between a husband and a wife. Yes, according to Jewish law, having sex with your spouse is a mitzvot. It's a good deed pleasing to God. Something to do this afternoon, for example. The law of Moses encourages sex between husband and wife. But it strictly forbids sex in any other way. So for Jews, the boundaries of holy sex are clearly defined. But things were very different in the non-Jewish world. The Greek philosopher Socrates, a very wise man, a very uh, educated man, Socrates thought that Sex between men or sex between men and boys was the ideal arrangement. And he thought this because he considered women to be inferior to men and thought that true love could only exist between equals. 
Socrates thought that men should have wives, of course. You know, Socrates liked young boys, but he was married to Xanthippe, and she was the mother of his three sons. But the purpose of the marriage in Socrates' mind, was to have children and to make sure that those children were yours, not some other man's, and to secure your property, to make sure that your wealth would be inherited by your legitimate child. Marriage, in Socrates' thinking, had nothing to do with love. Socrates also argues that sexual relations among soldiers should be encouraged because if the men love each other, they'll be braver in battle. So the Gentile world, the world into which Paul launches his missionary journey, had a very different view of the purpose of human sexuality than did the Jewish world. And Paul sees a parallel between the exchanging of the glory of God for mere images with the exchanging of natural sexual relations for unnatural relations. Just as natural reason and general revelation can teach us some things about God, so natural reason and general revelation can teach us some things about God's intention regarding human sexuality. You don't have to be a theologian to see that men and women are different and that they are, by their God-given design, intended for each other, regardless of what Socrates might have said. In Paul's view, the suppressing the truth of general revelation and exchanging the glory of the immortal God for the images of, of mortal things is analogous to suppressing the truth about God's design for human sexuality and exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to the God-given nature. So what do we do with this uh, whole passage that we read uh, this morning. Romans one eighteen says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women. Paul begins unpacking the gospel, the good news, with this double dose of bad news. He tells us that sin is pervasive. We learn that we really know better and so that we're, we don't have an excuse. And we learn that God's wrath will come crashing down on us one day if we don't do something about this sin problem. As strange as it seems, the good news starts with the bad news. Because God's gospel is a diagnosis of a deadly pre-existing condition, pervasive human sin. Because the gospel is God's prognosis of that condition if it's left untreated. We will receive wrath from God. Because the gospel is God's healing prescription for an otherwise incurable disease. Paul's purpose in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, the section we read this morning, is to point out to us the pervasiveness of human sin. This week's sins were Gentile sins. A little later we'll get around to the Jewish sins. No one is exempt. One word of caution that I would offer when we come upon These kinds of lists, these lists of sins in Scripture, and you'll find them scattered throughout the Bible in in various places. One caution that I would offer when we come upon these kinds of lists is that we keep our eyes on ourselves. The purpose of a list of sins is not for us to start pointing our fingers at other people. That's never our job. 
Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We need to let the Word of God penetrate our minds and our hearts. We need to let it show us who we are. So when I come upon, you know, a catalog of sins like Paul throws at us here in Romans chapter 1, my job is to be looking at my heart. Do I see envy, strife, deceit, malice? Am I haughty? Am I boastful, heartless, ruthless? There's no need for us to worry about other people's sins. There's no need for us to worry about what other people are doing. That's not our job. But we should allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts. We should allow the Holy Spirit to provide a gospel diagnosis of our condition. If you find the condition of your heart... To be one that you would like changed. If you find disorder and sin in your heart and in the fiber of your being. And if you want that to be corrected. Then what we do is we go to Jesus. Because he's the great physician. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says none are righteous, no, not one. So we all have the same diagnosis. We're all in the same boat. The question is, what will we do about that diagnosis? I encourage you to bring yourself to Jesus. To bring yourself just the way you are. The way you are today. And to let him go to work. And to heal your life. And to set you free. Let us pray. Father God it is by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. That these words were set down by brother Paul so long ago. And we ask that by the power of that same Holy Spirit. That you would speak to us across the centuries. That your law would come to life for us. That your eternal vision for your people and for your world would be alive in our minds. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this day. And that we pray as well that you would cause all other contrary gospels and alternative views... Anything other than your word, we pray that it would fall by the wayside, that we would be so attuned to you. We ask this favor in the name of Jesus. Amen.